I've had some strange dreams. You ever had any strange dreams? Sometimes I half awake during my dreams and start talking to Leanne, and I feel quite offended if she starts to address me as speaking anything other than with utmost seriousness. One time it was a uh, an Econoline van that I drove for work. Um, the back of it opened up in the parking garage of the Renaissance Center, which is the kind of uh, the icon building of the city of Detroit where General Motors has its world headquarters. And as the back of the van opened up, uh, paper started pouring out of the back of it. Just sheets and sheets and sheets of paper. It's very strange. So I woke up saying, uh, maybe shouting, it was, it was emphasis, uh, it, I'm, it's not a dream, it's not a dream, paper, 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 uh, that was odd, uh, but then, you know, you come, you, you, you remember things like that, but, you know, I didn't want to kill anyone about that dream, and so apparently, when King Nebuchadnezzar woke up several millennia ago, troubled by a dream that he had received, it was a little bit different than the oddest uh, or most real feeling dream that you had. He wanted to know what this dream meant. But not only did he want to know what the dream meant, he wanted to know what the dream was. And so he talked to his philosophers, his soothsayers, his magicians, to say, you need to tell me what this dream was and what it means. If you do, make you rich beyond your wildest imagination. If you don't, I will kill you and your family. Uh, this dream that was given to him by God, if you remember the story, Daniel uh, is given the dream and the interpretation. In the dream, King, King Nebuchadnezzar saw a bright, terrifying image, a statue towering over him, massive in its proportions. Its head was made of gold, its chest and arms were of silver, its middle and thighs were bronze, its legs were iron, and its feet were iron and clay. In this dream, there was also a mountain. And as big as a statue can be, it could never come anywhere close to the size of a mountain. So the case here. And from this mountain, a stone was cut that rolled like a bowling ball with, and struck the statue with such force that not only did the statue fall over, it was shattered into pieces, dissolving into dust that blew away in the wind. God gave to Daniel the interpretation of the dream as well. The golden head of that statue represented King Nebuchadnezzar. And his empire of Babylon, which would be replaced by another empire, and then another empire, and then another, until eventually a stone would come and crush them all and set up an unshakable kingdom that would fill the whole earth. That kingdom is the kingdom of Christ. Uh, the dream was meant to humble King Nebuchadnezzar, reminding him that the glory of his kingdom was fragile and it was temporary. And it was meant to point him to Christ, God's king, who would conquer all the kingdoms of the world fully and forever. Uh, as is so common among us humans, Nebuchadnezzar only paid attention to the part of the dream that he liked. The glory of the image with him as its golden head. So he decided to build an image of himself. A statue, 90 feet high and nine feet wide, made of gold, not just its head, all of it, made of gold, shining gloriously in the bright Middle Eastern sunlight. It was a representation of himself. 
that all his people could behold and worship. It was large and imposing like his great rule. It was glimmering with gold like the great wealth of his person and his empire. It was worthy of worship like he was as the king of the world. It was a visible representation of himself. This statue was a blasphemous idol, an image of an arrogant king. Who could ever imagine the Apostle Paul using this same word, image, to refer to our Lord Jesus Christ? Now, that's exactly what happens in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. If you don't already have your copy of God's word open, please do so quickly. Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 15 to 20, intending to cover all of verse 15 today, and that's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, but we'll cover the first phrase. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He, who is he? The Son from verse 13. Our Redeemer from verse 14. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile, him to, reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Starting last week, we've been asking the question, why is Jesus worthy, worthy of our lives and worthy of our worship? Why does he deserve our praise and the first answer to that question was found in verses 13 and 14 that we discussed last week. Why is Jesus worthy? He's worthy because he is our redeemer. It is Christ who has powerfully delivered us from slavery to sin by paying the great cost of our debt with his life given through death on the cross. Now, verses 15 to 20, they go on to give several more examples of the unmatched glory of Christ. The unmatched glory of Christ. Look at the first of those examples this morning. The text says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Why is Jesus worthy of our lives? Why is Jesus worthy of our worship? Why is Jesus worthy of our trust? Why is Jesus worthy of everything? It's because he is the image of the invisible God. And as the image of the invisible God, as the image, Jesus reveals God. That's what this idea is. That's what this word communicates to us. As the image of God, Jesus reveals God. God to us. Scripture is clear that God is spirit. 
that God is invisible. Uh, not able to be seen, right? We know what invisible means. If there's something that's invisible, you can't see it. And if you can see it, then it's not invisible, right? That's, that's the difference between the two of those things. God is spirit. God is invisible. He does not have a physical body. He is a spiritual being. The texts abound that we could look at for this. John 4, verse 24, Jesus tells us God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Earlier in his preface, John verse one, eight, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, makes this point very clear. No one has ever seen God. You say, well, why is that? Because God is invisible. God is spirit. No one has ever seen God. So if I say, raise your hand, have you seen God? No, <laughs> no one has ever seen God. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, at the close of that letter, it says that God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. No one has ever seen God. No one can ever see God because God is spirit. God is invisible. In a sense, there's nothing to see because seeing has to do with physical eyes. That's a physical reality term. Hebrews eleven twenty seven says this as well. So this is three different authors that we see through the New Testament. Hebrews 11 talks about people of God seeing him who is invisible. Scripture speaks with unity about the nature of who God is, and it speaks with unity here on the fact that God is invisible. And Paul says it here as well, the image of the invisible God. Although we each have a spirit or a soul, we have an immaterial, we have a spiritual part, we are physical beings, though. Uh, Physical beings with souls dwelling in a physical universe. Like God does not have a body. We do have bodies. Our bodies have senses, senses by which we experience the physical world around us. We see it. We smell it. We hear it. We touch it. Uh, depending on how young you are, we, you taste all of it. Uh, James tastes all of it. But if we come to know things physically and God has no physical form, how can we know him? Humanity is physical and spiritual. This is the the problem. How are we to worship a non-physical God when really all of our experiences end up seeming to be physically driven? Some would say that this is the argument for there being no God. It's not the case. So how can we worship God uh, if we don't know him? How can we know him if we can't see him or taste him or, or touch him or smell him or see him? He is by his very nature distant from us and inaccessible to us. And he's not just far away physically like Nepal or Neptune. He's far away from our thinking. He's far away from our understanding. It's like when I try to explain travel plans to our dog, Pepper. I mean, she may look at me and and cock her head, but my words mean nothing to her. We can't bridge that gap. Every, Every culture across time has recognized some aspect of this. So there's a problem. We're human, we're physical, uh, we're spiritual. They've recognized, every culture, the existence of spiritual beings called gods. 
Spiritual beings that exist but are not physically present among them or cannot be experienced physically by them. So to solve the problem of worshiping a being who is invisible, mankind has solved the problem by turning to images. Statues, carvings, paintings, images that represent the God they are worshiping. The nature of the image itself is significant. Uh, The materials used are significant. Uh, Gold for glory, right? Take your most valuable thing and use it to represent your God because you want that God to think, to know you think that God's valuable. So gold for glory or or iron for strength. Uh, The form used in these images is significant. Height for greatness, muscles for strength, eyes that that see their followers and, and ears that hear their prayers and mouths that utter blessings or cursings. When gods are represented by animals, it doesn't mean that that those people think that their gods are those animals, but they want the attribute of the animal represented in their God. So when gods are represented by animals, it means uh, uh, our God is as strong as an ox or as useful for crops. Our, Our God has the majesty of an eagle. Our God has the cunning of a snake. And of course, it's incredibly important to represent the attributes of the God correctly or you would dishonor him, right? Don't want to say, oh, my God's weak. Then you're trying to gain the affection of the God by saying he's weak. He's not going to work on your behalf. He's going to work against you. So you dishonor the God by representing him or crafting an image that isn't correct. Humanity has a, has a desire to see visible representations of the God that we are worshiping. We, we long for that. As we experience everything else physically, we want to experience God physically. But it's, it's important that those representations are accurate. And out of these two things, this problem that humanity is physical and spiritual and humanity's solution to that problem by creating images, we come to the second commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verses four and five, where God says, you shall not make a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God absolutely forbade images of himself in his people's worship. Number two, right? No other gods and no visible representations of me in Worship of me. Why was that? First, just because any image that we could possibly come up with, any man-made image of God would be stunningly inadequate and absolutely false. So false that our best, our best attempts at those images would communicate lies about God rather than truth. We would be that wrong. In trying to honor, we would dishonor. The greatest conception that we could have would be so far from reality that it would be blasphemous and insulting and false. Any attempt at an image becomes worshiping a false God. How could the creator God ever be represented by an image of a created thing? How is that possible? Is God like an ox? 
or a tall, strong human being? No. These images aren't even close. They're so wrong that it is insulting. Would Leanne be honored if I traced a smiley face on a rock and then told her that I see a resemblance between the two? Look, honey, it's an image of you. I don't think so. Leanne, would you be, would that be good? No? Okay. I didn't think so. No images are permitted in the worship of the one true God, first of all, because they would all be insultingly and blasphemously false. Do you know there's another reason why no images were permitted by God for his people? It's because God already has an image. Second reason no images are allowed in the worship of God is that God, God already has an image of himself for our worship. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is eternally the image of the invisible God. Eternally so. This is where Paul starts. Paul, how can you, how can you express the glory of the supremacy, the preeminence of who Christ is. Where are you going to begin? I'm going to begin before the beginning where the Son of God existed eternally as the image of God. All manifestations of God entering his creation, any example of God becoming visible are the Son of God revealing God to his created people. Every instance of God revealing himself to his people, that revelation comes through his son because the son is the image of the invisible God. This is one aspect of perhaps we could say his, his role in the Trinity. The son's role is to reveal God. The only image of God that could accurately and adequately represent God visibly must actually be God, you don't get to come close. You don't, get to, to, you don't get points for trying. The only thing that's close to God is God. Everything else is so, I mean, categorically different. You know what I, you know what I mean? Like totally, it's like there's two pools to draw from, God and not God. And to draw from anything that could come from not God to say, yeah, this is, this is God. No, it's not. Like you're, you're so wrong, it's moved beyond funny. It moves into blasphemy. Instantly. The image of God must be divine. Must be. Or it's not an adequate representation. So the voice of God, the word proceeding from God's mouth that created the universe, Genesis 1, that was his son. The form of God walking in the Garden of Eden was the son. The one who visited Abraham was the son. The one who wrestled with Jacob was the son. The, the glory on the mountain who appeared to Moses was the son. Different angels appear to different people throughout the Old Testament. We see that happening. I see it happen in the New Testament as well. But there's one particular phrase that you should always kind of, should catch your attention. 
as you're reading through, especially the Old Testament. And sometimes it's not just an angel. Sometimes it's the angel of the Lord. And the Lord's in all, you know, those lowercase caps. So the angel of Yahweh or the angel of Jehovah, depending on how you want to uh, transliterate that, bring that over from, from Hebrew. The angel of the Lord is different from just an angel. When an angel appears, people are stunned into silence at the glory. People, people want to bow down and worship. And those angels say, what are you doing? Get up off your knees. Don't, don't worship me. You know, from, from Genesis to Revelation, like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm just a messenger. But have you ever noticed that when people respond to the angel of the Lord and they respond understandably with worship, do you know what the angel of the Lord does? The angel of the Lord receives that worship. Because the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, appearing to God's people is the Son. Because no angel would receive worship. They are not an image of the invisible God. They are merely servants. Only God is God. And the Son is the image of God who reveals God to his people. Gideon, for example, is one of those. The king sitting on the throne in Isaiah 6. High and lifted up, whose train filled the temple. Angels crying, glory, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Do you know who is sitting on the throne? Jesus. Before he came and received the name Jesus. The son of God. The son of God reveals God to his people. The son of God reveals God to his creation. We better find support in the word, right? How do we know that the Son of God reveals God to his people? John 1.18, I only read the first sentence, well, first clause of it. John says, no one has ever seen God. You kind of have a but. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The Son of God reveals, makes known God to his people. Hebrews 1 verse 3, the Son is, this is kind of a cool, because you could do S-U-N-S-O-N, right? The Son, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You go to Philippians that he existed in the form of God, but this radiance idea from Hebrews, it's like the, the visible aspect of the light. And you, you drive too much into an illustration, you lose it. It's like, oh, okay, so there's the sun and then there's the light from the sun and so there's a distinction between those and it's like you're moving into heresy. Just let the image kind of hit you. What do you see and feel of the radiance of the sun? You feel the light and the heat. Jesus is what we know of God and how we know God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who reveals God to his people. This is true eternally. Paul is not actually talking about the incarnation yet here. So he's not talking about post-birth of Jesus. He's talking about forever. Is, not was, or would be, or became. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's true eternally. It's true throughout the Old Testament, some of the things that we looked at. It is also true, though, in the incarnation, it's true before the incarnation. It's true before Genesis 1. It's true forever. It's also true in the incarnation when the eternal word of God, the eternal son of God, took on a human nature. Where we could read in John 1, 14, the word 
who eternally was with God, the eternally, who eternally was God, according to verses 1, 2, and etc. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Oh, like angelic glory? Like really pretty bright? Like glory like God's glory? No. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Angels have reflective glory. The son has his own glory because the son is God and the son reveals God to his people. John 14, verse nine. Jesus said to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. My dad's now part of our church. And I look a little bit like my dad. I act a little bit like my dad. I laugh like my dad. I sneeze like my dad. I don't have the handshake of my dad. It's like he's a lot like his dad. But I'm not my dad. You see me, you don't, you don't see my dad. I see a resemblance. It's funny, you can look at James and be like, yeah, he looks kind of like his dad. Be like, that's the sense of humor that God has there. Jesus said, if you have seen me, don't just see somebody who's like the Father. You have seen the Father because the Son is the image of the invisible God. You see Jesus, you see God. Well, hyperbole, right? Exaggeration, rhetorical effect. Nobody, nobody really thought that. That's interesting and not true. Obviously, that was a setup. Throughout the Gospels, we see the exact opposite actually being true. Matthew chapter 14, for example, Jesus calms the storm, right? He's napping. Be like Jesus. Take naps. The storm comes up. His disciples wake him up. Don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus speaks a word, right? Be still. And everything just... And then he's like, why were you afraid? I'm right here. It's amazing. And do you know what the disciples do at that point? Those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. The disciples saw his power of creation and worshipped him because they knew he was not a man, merely. He was God. Matthew 28, verse 9, after the resurrection, the women had left the tombs, excuse me, had left the angels at the empty tomb. Jesus met them, and what was their response? They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Matthew 28, verse 17, the 11 disciples see Jesus after the resurrection. Matthew records, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. John chapter 9, there's a man born blind. It's a significant miracle that takes place. Uh, He gets into a confrontation with the religious leaders. They cast him out of the temple. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, goes and finds him and says, do you believe in the son of man? And this man who had been born blind but now can see, he answers, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. (laughs) You used to not see anything, but now you see me. It is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. 
John 20, verse 28, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to Thomas. There's multiple appearances that take place. Goes up to Thomas, who had doubted, shows him the nail holes in his hand, the spear hole in his side, and Thomas answers and says, my Lord and my God. That is a statement of worship. We talked about the first, we talked about the second of the Ten Commandments. Do you remember what the first of the Ten Commandments are? The first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods beside me. No one else gets the worship of God's people. That's what God is jealous of. Don't misrepresent me. Don't worship anybody alongside of me. Your worship is reserved for me only. He's jealous like with the affection that a husband deserves from his wife. You don't, you don't pass that around and you don't pass around worship, right? It's reserved for God himself, Jesus knew that, his disciples knew that, the angels know that, and so when worship is offered to one who is righteous and undeserving, they, they decline that. The angels say, no, don't worship me, right? Paul says, stop, stop, I'm not Zeus, I'm not Hermes, I'm not one of the gods. Don't worship me, you need to get away from this type of stuff. Jesus is worshiped time and time again prior to and following his resurrection and he never stops them. How could he be a prophet who honored God and receive worship reserved for God if he wasn't God? You don't get to be righteous and worshiped if you don't deserve worship. If you fall down and worship me, you're a fool and it's blasphemy. You fall down and worship Jesus, it's right because he is worthy of worship because the Son of God reveals God to his people. Jesus deserved worship. Jesus deserves worship in his incarnation. He, not, he did not correct them. He did not stop them. He received their worship because it was right. So Jesus, the God-man, continues even in his incarnation to reveal God as his image, and that continues to the present as well. Jesus continues to reveal God to his people. We have that in his word, and we have that in the gospel. Wonderful passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6 in the case of those who reject the gospel, in their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give to us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. No angel can reveal God like this. His very essence, his very form, his very glory. Angels are created beings. Whatever glory shines from them is, is reflected. So there were those in Colossae who had been teaching that they had a extra special, they, they, had, they had gospel plus given to them through this, this worship of angels. 
Oh, I have a better gospel than you have. You, you have Jesus, that's good. I have Jesus and I have these angelic visions. So my gospel, better than your gospel. And Paul says, that's no gospel. We don't worship angels. They have nothing about them with which to worship. They are merely servants. You can get into the whole first chapter of Hebrews with these type of things. No angel can reveal God. No angel is God's image. No mere human, likewise, can reveal God to his people like this. It's difficult to try to understand exactly what, what uh, Moses is saying, what God is saying, is recorded by Moses in Genesis uh, about the creation of humanity. But it seems that there is a significant difference between the fact that we are made in, according to the image of God. Jesus is not according to the image of God here in this text. Jesus is the image of God. Again, he's not talking about his incarnation in this text. He's talking about forever who he's been. And then the image of God was then made according to the humanity image of God in order to be our savior and our redeemer, in order for us to be able to worship him and worship God correctly. No angel can reveal God like this. No other prophet or priest from any religion. No author no teacher, no preacher, no one can ever reveal God to you unless they point you to Christ. This is a, a prophet. It's true or false based off of whether the prophecies came true, right? They said something was going to happen. Did it happen? Yes then this could have been from God. Did it not happen? Then it couldn't be from God. God knows all things. God doesn't make mistakes. Any teacher, any book, any preacher, anywhere, anytime that tries to take your attention away from Jesus as the one who deserves all of our worship cannot be from God. And it's not Jesus plus something else. It's just Jesus. We worship the Father by worshiping the Son. That is to the glory of God. Jesus Christ is forever the image of the invisible God, deserving our worship, demanding our worship, worthy of our entire lives. So, so we gather each week to worship Jesus. God, in his Kindness and generosity and mercy has revealed himself to us. He wrote about it to the fathers by the prophets. But then in these last days, he's revealed himself and spoken to us by his son. This is the one that we gather to worship. He is our Savior. He is our risen king. That's why the songs were pointing to, to him. And have, you, have you thought about the astounding aspect of what Jesus said to his disciples or what, how Luke recorded it, where Jesus has said, let's, let's just do a quick Bible lesson here. All of this is about me. All of it. Again, not an exaggeration. This is the truth. We don't 
know anything about God except what we know through his son because the son is the one who reveals God to us. He is the image of the invisible God. So we know who to worship. We worship Jesus. Now and forever. We gather weekly to do just that. We gather to worship Jesus for the glory of God. Worship team, would you come up? <clears throat> this section of Colossians, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, is, is commonly referred to as a hymn. Almost every, uh, every commentator across time, this is a hymn, this is a hymn, this is a hymn. Um, there's obviously a unique difference in writing style between verses 15 and 20 and the things that come before it and the things that come after it. It's filled with a number of short statements and all of them point to the glory of Christ. And every one of these statements are loaded with truth and beg to be unpacked, like a suitcase overflowed to the breaking point, straining its zipper. When you start to open it just a little bit for just one short sermon, all of a sudden the thing explodes open and you can only get like five words into the text. But all of these things, in short form and long form, pointing throughout the whole world, all of this highlight the incomparable worth and glory of Christ our Lord and Savior. Scripture is meant to be memorized and and hymns are meant to be sung. If the Lord wills, we're going to continue to study this passage for the next several weeks. As we do so, we're also going to sing this passage together so that by adding a melody to these inspired words, we will better commit it to memory and better respond to its truths in worship. But before we sing this together, I want to read together this hymn about Christ. Would you stand? You can follow along in your copy of God's word or on the screen. We're gonna read Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and then Robbie and the team will lead us in singing Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross.